how can you be consciously unconscious? What do you mean by that? Let's say I, I give you a delete button and I say, look, Lisa, if you press this button three times, you can erase three things forever from the internet. From the internet. What would you say that this product would do for someone that, first of all, just came out as a personal trainer yeah. and the person has been there for 20, 30 years? Yeah. Who is Lisa Lewis? Oh. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. I've been following your work at, at Girls Gone Strong. Um, I know a lot of articles that um, uh, Tony Jellicoe had in, on his uh, webpage that seriously for me they were a great tool because sometimes uh, I'm not sure if we're coaching or criticizing the people that we deal with. Mm -hmm. um, but my question is because I know a lot of people know you, uh, who is Lisa Lewis? Oh, well. I am a licensed psychologist and I am a certified uh, drug and alcohol counselor and addiction specialist. Um, and essentially I combine my passion and my love for fitness and in particular strength training with psychology. Um, I come from a, a background of kind of starting out in clinical psychology, which is working with mental illness and how to correct it. Mm -hmm. um, I finished my master's degree in clinical psychology in, in 2000 and Three and worked in settings where people were mentally ill for many years. So inpatient psychiatry, outpatient psychiatry, detox units, substance abuse. And then I went back and earned my doctoral degree in counseling psychology with a focus on sport and exercise psychology. And so that really opened up the spectrum of who I worked with from just people who wanted to go from sick to baseline to people who were functioning and, and doing well and who were healthy but who wanted to take themselves from good to awesome, you know, who either wanted to enhance performance, grow personally, pursue goals, get out of their own way in terms of how they communicate or manage relationships. So this degree I focused on performance enhancement, the psychology of optimal performance, positive psychology. My dissertation research was on exercise motivation and the self-determination theory. Oh, well. Wow. And so who I have grown into as a professional is someone who really enjoys being a generalist and working along that whole spectrum from very, very mentally ill to extremely high functioning um, type A type individuals and using a strengths-based focus instead of focusing on what's wrong because individuals themselves are their own worst critics and they're always good at identifying their weaknesses what's wrong but I find it very productive to work with a strengths-based focus to look at where the individual is in their in their development what their contexts are what their goals are and then how to help them pursue those using all their strengths um, and so today I get to do that in a private practice online consultation I teach at a local university and I, I sort of cross train as a professional I get to do a little bit of everything um, and of course, I still love um, strength training myself. So I like to be in the gym. And I've also taught spin uh, indoor cycling classes for, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years. Oh, wow. um, so I, I love that part of it too, that I get to bring what I know and, and what I understand about motivation into a group exercise setting and, 
and practice leadership in that way. It's great because you're still in the trenches. So you combine both the, let's say, the, the actual aspect of science mm -hmm. to the actual part where everything's going on, every, wherever the magic is happening. Yeah. So I like to think of it as being that bridge. You know, my training and my doctoral degree was the scientist practitioner model. So being able to understand theory and concepts and being able to digest literature and research and then being able to communicate that not only to myself, but to trainers and coaches and students and people who want to work out and people who just want to change and grow. And I think that that mix and being that bridge is just so dynamic. It's so energizing. It always keeps me learning. Um, it is a wonderful um, kind of spot to be in as a practitioner. What's the actual um, um, part of motivation, which I, I th believe from what I can understand, it's based on emotion. <laughs> and then we've got behavioral changes that <laughs> actually they are a part of, oh, there's so many subcategories of behavioral science, because first of all, we cannot cheat our own biology. So we are who we are, we're humans. Yep. Um, but I don't know if we can put, we say motivation and mm. we say change. How, what's motivation, what's behavioral change? Mm -hmm. So motivation is this internal drive that energizes and directs behavior. It gets it going and then it, it helps it to persist. It keeps it moving. You use the word emotion. It is this juice. It's this energy that is inside. And actually motivation can come from many different um, things in the environment and also within the individual. Um, behavior change is a process. You know, that is the execution of a series of stages to move from one habit to another or one practice to another. So motivation is the gas and behavior change is getting in the car and driving from A to B. Perfect. That's uh, actually the best explanation I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> how uh, can we uh, solidify our motivation? Because sometimes we can have the best car. Yeah. But no fuel. Yeah. Amen to that. And I think that what I want, one thing I try to do with people I educate is you have fuel if you're even talking about wanting to change. So sometimes people will say like, oh, I have no motivation to get to the gym. I have no, I recently did a, a, a podcast with a woman who works with middle-aged women. And she was like, people will message me on Instagram all the time and say, oh, I have no motivation to get back to the gym. And I said, well, if they're emailing you or they're direct messaging you, they have motivation. Yep. It's just either n not enough to evoke change or they're earlier on in the stages of change. So what I mean by that is someone might have this feeling like I need to go to the gym because I want to lose weight or I, I want to go to the gym because I know that it's important for my heart health or for my longevity. Mm -hmm. But that actually might not move them into taking an action step because they're still contemplating. They're still thinking. They're mm -hmm. still trying to accrue enough gas so that they can actually turn on the ignition and go. And I, I think that that's often undervalued. And so one of the things I do when I work with clients is instead of them saying, oh, I don't have enough or I'm not motivated, 
which is a criticism, is to say, well, let's look at what's there. What are the reasons? What are the motives? And then how can we grow that? So if someone's contemplating and they're like, oh, I know it's good for my heart or I know I should lose weight, well, what, what makes you say that? And so maybe they say, well, I, you know, every man in my family has had heart disease by age 50. Oh, mm -hmm. so how do you prevent heart disease? What's making you think exercises? Well, I don't know. I've just kind of heard. All right. Well, would you want to read some more articles on it? Or would you want to find out what kind of exercises have the best efficacy for heart health? And then you offer them education, you offer information, you help them talk to somebody who maybe knows more. So what you're doing is you're adding value to that behavior that they want. That's what I'm going to say. You're Connecting adding leverage. Their highest value so they can adhere to what actually they want to do. Correct. So once they have more information, that's going to amp them up. Okay, now I really want to do this. So the motivation is becoming more internalized. It's not just that they want the outcome, it's that they identify the outcome as being personally meaningful with their own values. Um, and they want their values and their behaviors to, to be congruent, to be parallel with one another. So you want to kind of feed that, fan the flame or, or, or give more fuel to that. So low motivation, I always try to like help to reassess or repackage that and then see if we can grow it into more motivation, which basically just means more internalized um, and moving the person from contemplating change to actually getting ready to taking action steps. That's brilliant because as you said, a lot of people feel, as I said, because that's one of my questions, like do we actually, uh, I've been a coach for close to 20 years and many times I'm trying to say, do I coach or do I criticize? Do, am I, am I, what is the missing link? And yeah. I'm not going to lie, uh, people are taking psychology a lot more. That's right. Um, like I think it's the number one skill that somebody needs to do because um, Brett Bartholomew with Conscious Coaching, when he brought that book up, I was like, thank you, brother. Because mm -hmm. uh, everybody can uh, find a programming. Everything works. But in, in the aspect of proper uh, bringing someone in the gym and make him uh, congruent with his values, mm -hmm. and him adhere to that program that's going to change not only his lifestyle, his health and his well-being, but hormonally, but uh, biochemically is going to change. Uh, it's psychology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and we're lacking on that skills. Um, how can you be consciously unconscious? What do you mean by that? So, you know, you've got a lot of people saying, especially when they're trying, because we said about habits before. Yes. You, you, and I, because I was working with professional athletes for like, uh, especially this year in the summer, I was working with two people, uh, tennis players, especially that was saying, why didn't you do that? And he's like, it's not that I don't know it. It's that I don't know how to do it when I'm supposed to be in that place, in that match. In the zone. Mm -hmm. And you see that people are repeating the same mistakes, but yeah. when they're in practice, they know what they do. Yeah. They can talk to you about hours for about what they have to do, but when they go into the court, they forget. So there's a missing link there. Yes. What do you think is the problem? Deliberate, deliberate practice. So essentially when they go into competition, their senses are heightened. You know, they have their, they're very activated physiologically. And so when you are under stress, if you are feeling pressure to perform or even performance anxiety, your scope of options, your focus narrows. 
And what happens is you go back to the most limited menu of options that okay. you've ever had. And so whatever is the most automatic, whatever is the most unconscious, like you use the word unconscious, but whatever pattern, movement pattern you've practiced the most, that's the one you might go to first. So that's why you might execute something that ends up in a mistake or an error mm-hmm. when you're in that moment because your, fo- your focus is really narrowed your thinking is rigid and tight. And so you're, it's, think about like fight, flight, freeze. You're, you're in that zone where you just, you have to think really fast. And so you're going to go to whatever is the most automatic and the most known to your body. When you're in practice, you don't have that performance anxiety. You don't have that pressure turned up. So your physiology is in a different, probably more relaxed place. And when we have more positive emotion, we have more possibilities open to us. So this is Barbara Fredrickson's theory of broaden and build. And mm-hmm. she essentially says that positivity or positive emotion actually helps you to be creative and, and use outside of the box behaviors. So when you're practicing and you're trying to like get rid of an old habit, executing a skill and learn a new way to execute that skill, you need tons and tons and tons and tons of repetition and deliberate practice number one, to make that automatic so that it becomes the go-to behavior. And then number two, I think the other thing that I might, if I was interacting with one of these athletes, I might say, is there a way for us to bring down your arousal level or your anxiety level in performance so we can just open the door a little bit more so that there's one more option on the menu for how you can execute that movement. Um, And so that might just be like, um, an anxiety reduction technique, you know, some kind of mental skill, just to, not that we have to zen them out because they want to be in some range of amps that works really well for them, but we just maybe want to tweak it a little bit so that they have that extra millisecond to remember, this is how I want to execute that movement, the way that I just practice it a thousand times over the course of the last two weeks. It's an important, uh, an important note here that actually uh, we coaches say sometimes, you know, we're psychologists, we're dietitians, we're this, we're dads, we're this, we're that. And I always say, yes, but that's the, the because we are actually a general that is up there and needs to, you know, delegate things. Mm-hmm. I would say if you see a, a, your athlete needs that, delegate it to the best. And that's why we're going to start working together, as I told you that. One of my athletes needs to f- do that. Call Lisa, finish it up. She knows what she's doing, and it's her <laughs> job. And sometimes we we work. We don't give. The, that's why I was saying that when we're coaching, we need to find what's the best way in order to uh, affect the performance. Because what you actually do is human optimization. So, in that order, uh, that person needs to come to you in order to get that performance set up. Mm. And, and I, I, I think we're moving towards a model, at least I see this in healthcare, where it's a more team approach. So sometimes people use the expression, stay in your lane, like, you yeah. know, and I, I don't think of staying in your lane like being on a track. I think of staying in your lane like being in a swimming pool because mm-hmm. you, you are sometimes practicing psychological skills you are sometimes making nutrition recommendations. So you are, but then once that water or once that topic has flowed way outside the lane, then you wanna be able to bring in another practitioner to address 
you know, that area of the water and you want to work together. It's not that you're saying like, this is something different. You need to talk about that with someone else. It's that's like, instead of saying, but you want to say, and, and I think we should bring on someone who's awesome at thinking about thinking and helping you to reframe your thinking. Because if we could do that, then you and I could help you, you know, to be faster, stronger, make less errors, you know, so on and so forth. Um, So I think it's about how we pitch it to our clients. And if we pitch it as being a holistic model, as being bringing this other person on is going to improve your performance because we set it up so in such a much more positive, constructive light than saying like something's wrong with you. And so now you need to like go see somebody about that. Yeah. And that's what you see uh, that happened from uh, previous years from uh, colleagues uh, of yours that as we also uh, know that when people hear therapy, they're like, whoa, yeah, whoa. And I'm like, yeah, OK, see it as training your uh, your psychology. It's it's okay. a way of uh, re- reprogramming your brain, your That's habits. Right. So it's training again. That's right. And and actually, I think one advantage that I have as a psychotherapist is that I get to say I do performance enhancement and performance consultation mm-hmm. because to me personally, it's all the same. But people have a stigma about you know, thinking about mental health counseling or psychotherapy, but really, I mean, the idea that the most complicated, sophisticated, number one organ in your body and number two computer known to man never needs checking or unpacking or upgrading is ridiculous. (laughs) It is the most complicated thing that exists. And we are utilizing it to execute decisions, performance, relationships. So the idea that you can do all that math by yourself, I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. I hope there'll be a day where like you just go talk to someone because that's, of course you need to talk to someone. Yeah. Um, you need to build a better buy-in on all that. That's right. And I think that as practitioners, we should all be working together to do that, to find the language that opens that opportunity up the most to the client or to whomever it is that you want to refer. Um, and so that means that you yourself as the, as the coach have to have a good understanding of why would this be helpful? What would that practitioner be adding to the performance? And I have found that even when I, I, um, I most recently was asked by a sports medicine doctor, an orthopedic doctor mm-hmm. to see a client um, who she feels has a running addiction and you know, I said, we, what, uh, how I am going to approach this, I want you to pitch it as performance enhancement, not yeah. as we have to deal with your addict, your running addiction, because pathologizing it, number one, that person's going to be like, oh, she's going to want to take away the running from me. Number two, it has this negative, you know, something is wrong with you that needs to be corrected. Um, and number three, even though it has become ad- addictive and is too much, there's probably plenty that individual loves about it. Yeah, and all, you need to assess the person, right? Because what right. I think it's a, if I don't run and I hear someone who's running like 30 miles per week, I might say, whoa, there's a problem there, but it might not be anything, actually. Right. Um, and, I, so, and so pitching it as its performance enhancement opens the door, because my personal opinion is that all roads lead to Rome. Whether yeah. we start out by talking about um, love for running and maximizing performance, or if we talk about addiction, we're going to get to the same place, which is 
is he hurt? Is he running instead of like spending time with friends and family? Is he injured and he's running anyway? Is he fatigued? Is he, you know, so I'm right. going to get to the data. It's just that people are more open to talking when they feel like they're going to improve their life than as opposed to like, I'm going to sit here and dive into how sick and, and messed up I am. Boy, I am. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why uh, people, we that would deal with people and especially in uh, either because they're in pain or because they're uh, the one, as you said, perform better, they open up. And we that's why I said uh, when we, we need to stop criticizing and start coaching people mm-hmm. in the best way to get to meet their full potential. That's right. And I think that that is a little bit of a paradigm shift, but you can do it with practice. And, and one of the things I typically recommend is motivational interviewing because it is a style of communication that focuses on strengths and what's going well and it allows space for clients to identify their own goals and next steps to work on and it just gets the practitioner it gets the coach out of the posture of being the criticizer or the one who's in charge having to be the expert exactly and yeah that's that model is shifting especially with the uh, in the medical uh, um, authority now that used to be I'm the doctor I'm going to tell you what to do now the patient comes in is like let's find out what you want to do yes everything is getting towards that yes Uh, you talked about stress before how can stress affect uh, injury Mm. man stress (laughs) (laughs) Um, stress affects every system of the body It really influences um, how we are operating physiologically and how we see the world psychologically and our capacity to cope and respond in healthy ways. Um, So stress can typically cause fatigue um, and stress leads people to go into go-to behaviors or stress management behaviors. Mm -hmm. Some of us have good stress management behaviors that are adaptive. Some of us have bad stress management behaviors that are maladaptive. Most of us have a mix. And when somebody is operating within like a healthy level of stress, what that means is they deal with stuff. They have difficult things come up, but they're able to cope in healthy ways that keep them moving forward. Maladaptive stress management is engaging in behaviors or making choices that actually make the stress worse and then get in the way of functioning and achieving goals. So it's not that the like the most healthiest successful people don't have stress. It's that they have a pretty comprehensive system in place. They have a big menu of options of how to manage all that stress they've got so they can keep it moving. What do you think would be the best uh, let's say protocol for someone that uh, cannot deal with that because stress, as Hans Selye was saying, it's an, an adaptation mechanism, right? Yeah. Um, it keeps us alive. Yes. But if it's too much, it can kill you. Yes. So let's say a person doesn't have a healthy stress um, way of dealing with things. Mm-hmm. What would be uh, what would be your like say first three steps? What would you say? So the first thing, if a client said that to me, the first thing I would do is say, well, you're older than like six years old. So you do have some stress management. Let's see what you've got first. So first I'd want to take an inventory and find out what's worked in the past. What are things they enjoy? 
Um, do they have healthy relationship, any healthy relationships intact? So I want to do an inventory of that. And then I would want to reflect back to them. You already have some things going on for, for you, like using that strength space. So you already have this, like this amazing best friend, or you already have this love of meditation. These are rock solid stress management skills. I wonder if there's a way you could be maximizing how much you utilize these, or I wonder if there's a way to like weave them in more. So I would start with what they've got and see if there's a way to leverage those. Okay. And then the next thing I would do is explore, like, what do you think would help you feel less stressed? Because they know themselves way better than I ever could. So, I mean, they might randomly, last month I was talking to somebody who's a power lifter and she said, I actually used to love to knit. I would have never thought about knitting in a million years. <laughs> But it was within her, and that was a, a part of something in a history that was related to, like, she was taught by her grandmother, and it, it is very meditative. I mean, people will use it yeah. in a therapeutic way. So I was like, that's a fabulous idea. Like, how could you get back to that? And so we sort of made a plan for her, like, buying some wool and finding her own needles and maybe getting a magazine to get some ideas and... And so that creation of the plan is very energizing. It mm -hmm. makes the client feel like, oh, like I have this idea and I can make a plan and I'm excited to execute this plan. And it builds self-esteem. It gets them actively engaged in the process. And I haven't made any suggestion at all because how would I know that knitting is like a thing that, you know, that would be like a helpful thing. So inventory first, exploration second, and then I plan it to death. Like, so I get really specific, like, how would you do this? When would you do this? What would be the signs that like, it's time to sit down and knit or it's time to call your friend? Um, what might get in the way of you calling a friend or, or what might interfere with you sitting down to knit? Just trying to pick it, really unpack it so that by the time I'm finished talking to the client, they've got a really solid idea of what they're going to do, why mm -hmm. they're going to do it, and then how they're going to troubleshoot like when life gets in the way as it always inevitably does. Yes. Great. No, it's good because we usually see things, but actually by said inventory and actually being able to focus on what's wrong, sometimes you're missing other things that can actually help you. Mm. What I always say is people don't ask questions. Uh, people don't want to raise the hand and say, look, I need some, uh, some help. Mm. That's the best way to, to do it. Mm. Um, that was a good segue because, um, uh, I've been working with um, um, children, and how old? Um, I, I was from four years old to Ooh. sixteen. Wow! And uh, three years ago, I was working in Spain for a semi-pros and pros tennis academy. Okay. And you come across with parents, so kids. Uh, even though they're semi-pros or pros, they're still kids. Yeah. They find an entertainment, which that might be their buy-in for the sport they do. That's right. Um, but how can I handle a parent that is making the sport not being fun anymore? Mm. Isn't that terrible? It makes <laughs> it makes me sad even to think about that. And I know that this is a this is a problem across youth sport in in various cultures. Um, and, and one of the main ways that you're helping a kid 
before the age of 18 is by providing education and working with the parent, collaborating with the parent. Because even if you're able to like have an excellent rapport and be so helpful with the kid, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the influence that the parent has. So I think the question that you're asking is such an important one. And I, I do think that it is a difficult dance to navigate trying to influence and make recommendations and provide education to someone who considers themselves not the client or the athlete, but who considers themselves in charge exactly. and the athlete. So mm -hmm. I actually will often think of a parent as the client, especially if the, if the child is a minor. And I will think about how can I provide them with information that will increase their motivation to highlight fun and enjoyment for their child? Because that is really the most powerful performance enhancing substance that we have. God, yeah. Is intrinsic enjoyment um, of the sport. And so, you know, some parents are more academic and they might want to hear about literature. Some parents are reassured by this is how our program operates. This is why we spend time in practice doing X, Y, and Z. Some parents might be warmer and a little more open to, to saying something gentle, like we know when kids have fun, that's, that's when they perform their best and that's when they reach their fullest potential. So I do think, again, this is coaches putting on their, their therapist or their, or their psychologist cap is learning in what way to communicate with parents that's going to be the most effective to get them to think about what their kids doing differently. Excellent. Yeah, because that's a that's a really big uh, problem, especially uh, especially when when kids are not that good. Yeah. Coach's eye, and you you're trying to say, look, everybody can run, but not anybody can become Usain Bolt. Yeah. Um, and that's also a problem that um, was talking actually Tony about that when you're trying to talk to a client regarding that, look, you're not structurally there mm. or anatomically there for, a, let's say, a snatch. Let's find something else because this is going to increase your injury. Yeah. And I know I've, I've, I've may not have done it in the best way. So I usually say, look, you're a four by four. You cannot run at Monza, like a Ferrari, but mm. you can go, you know, on a, on a mountain, you can be the best car ever because there's mm. nothing best. Like Ferrari is an amazing car, but not on the mountains. So I'm trying to put it in that way, but you feel that people feel uh, that they're not able to perform. It's like, oh, I cannot do a snatch, for example. Mm. And I find that uh, hard sometimes. Uh, I, I'm getting better, but how would you... Uh, do that yeah so I would start with a strengths based and I would not close the door because again I think that all roads lead to Rome so let's say yeah. the individual client you're talking about who they're not set up to be able to do a snatch overhead press the way that I might approach that and I'm I'm not a trainer so my language might, might not be the most technically correct but the way that I might approach that is to say you know, when we did your assessment, we went through a workout. I noticed that um, you're not able to safely get your hand, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening with your shoulder. And so when your shoulder is moving that way, the thing we want to do to get it stronger is to do this exercise or that exercise. Or I notice you're rotating this way. If we want it, if you want to be able to do a snatch, you've got to be able to rotate in that way. 
And so what I, what I can do is create a program that will help you be able to improve your range of motion, rotate your shoulders differently, get stronger so that you might actually be able to get to a place. True. So I would set it up like if you want to go there, here's how you get there. In terms of the of the athlete, like the runner, not being Hussein Bolt, I think the nuance there is I hear that your goal is that you want to be the fastest sprinter there is. The way that you're going to get to be the fastest sprinter that there is, is to continue with your interval training, hammer down on your nutrition, get the best sleep you possibly can, and let's make sure you're having fun. What are you good at right now? You rock the house at trail runs. So I want yeah. to keep trail runs in there to keep your endurance up, keep you enjoying. Um, and then, and then you can work on seeing how far you can get with your goal of being a faster sprinter. And so what you're doing is you're packaging it and you're saying the program that I'm presenting to you, the plan I'm presenting to you is in the pursuit of your goals. Yeah. So you, it takes you away from having to be the judge of whether or not the goal is realistic because they're going to be able to work that out eventually. Either because they're going to give up and say, you know what, I've been trying and trying and trying and I can't get there. Or because they're going to be like, you know what, uh, trail running is so much more fun and I just get my butt kicked every time I'm yeah. in a sprint. So they'll naturally lean to, you know, they will collect their own data and make their own decisions. You are there to guide them, to provide feedback. Um, but if they're going to get shut down or if they're going to not be helped by, listen, you're just not built to be a sprinter. Then, and if it makes you feel bad, then don't go there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue because uh, we talked about, uh, you know, the parents. Then we talked about how people are not built for something. Yeah. What's your opinion on early specialization in sports? Um, that's my, that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I think that young people should be sampling a broad, broad range of Thanks. movements and experiences and that that actually sets them up to be the highest level athlete they can possibly be. So again, all roads lead to Rome. My agenda is I want a young person coming out of secondary or tertiary education with a big repertoire of movement and kinesthetic awareness and athleticism so that when they are living their life as an adult, they can take take opportunities like pick up basketball game or a tennis tournament or going to the gym where there's free weights so that they feel they have a high level of competency around how to utilize and take care of their body. So that's my agenda. The parent's agenda is to get them to be a professional athlete. Well, guess what? People who are professional athletes have mastery over their body and over a broad range of movements, and they love, love, love whatever the sport is that they are engaged in. If you want your kid to love what they are engaged in, you cannot specialize them before the age of 16. Period. There's so much research out there showing that yeah. people like uh, I was reading the book Range. I was saying that uh, big athletes uh, stopped. They went like dancing or they did uh, basketball. They did, and then when they came back, they were so yeah, cool. yes. Even in their movements, on their thinking, because I think the because of the neuroplasticity of new movements, maybe gave them more the um, dexterity on what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also keeping away from the burnout, actually, because doing the yeah. same thing over and over again, it's don't think it's the best thing. No. And developmentally, we are not ready for all of that repetition. And just like just like that busting your ass mode and like 
you know, as adults, we can identify the outcome as being meaningful. So we can be like, I'm going to get all these reps in and all this practice in because I want that. But when you're 15 years old, you don't have your identity developed yet. And so you're not able to think abstractly about, I'm going to enjoy this and get a lot out of this and make the sacrifice of my time and my energy. You're just not ready for that yet. So the fun level has to be up. And I absolutely agree with you that there are so many transferable skills from activity to activity that you are adding dexterity or just gracefulness or just familiarity with your body when you're, when you're trying out different, different things, different activities. Great. Um, that's because, uh, actually a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation regarding that because they were pushing a specific person to do the same thing uh -huh. and I talked to him and I'm like, what do you want to do? He's like, you know, when I play basketball, when I do this, I'm like, just go do it. Like, yep. if just go you do feel it. like you want to do it, just go do it. Yeah. Try not to get injured, but just try to do it. Yeah. Um, you said before about uh, self-determination theory, you know, people have three needs, the vitamins. Yes. I mean, actually, I was talking to a, a good colleague in Greece uh, regarding uh, uh, Joanne, Dr. Joanne Duda that's going to be, uh, be there. Wow. Um, are, are they, you know, competence, uh, autonomy, and uh, relate, uh, relate relatedness? Yeah. Are they the, the vitamins? Yes, they are. And you are like, um, I don't know if preaching to the choir is the right expression, but this is my jam, <laughs> pretty much. Um, I just recently uh, completed a continuing education course for personal trainers and strength coaches and nutritionists, and chapter one is basic psychological needs theory that your clients have physical needs they have physiological needs and they have psychological needs and that you can meet their need for autonomy by practicing as an autonomy supportive coach mm -hmm. you can meet the need for competency by providing informational feedback and for helping your client to learn and you can meet the need for relatedness, not only by the rapport you have with your client, but by the community of the team or the gym setting, or even if you are an online coach and you have a Facebook group, some other kind of online community, you can practice in ways that are psychologically informed to facilitate those needs. And if you can meet those needs, you are going to enhance motivation, you are going to improve performance, and you're gonna have a more successful business. <laughs> If you are thinking in that way. So we need to take those vitamins uh, daily. Yes, absolutely. Okay. They are a crucial part of life. What would be a, a protocol that someone uh, that needs to feed that motivation should do every day? Do you think it's something that it should have the, because for me, it's my habits. If, if, if I change even my breakfast, I uh. just... I'm like, I need to have the same things. I, um, I need to be on that route in order to get somewhere. Uh, yeah. you, you train hard and you know that, that yeah. you need to keep your small boxes. Yes. But, and people call us, oh, you're, um, you've got OCD or whatever, but they don't get that that's what keeps us on route. That's right. What's your take on the, let's say the protocol? Yeah, so that is a good protocol for us because for us, fitness behaviors are integrated into who we are. So yeah. there is a spectrum of motivation in the self-determination theory and integrated regulation is, is a type of motivation that's not intrinsic because it's not just, it's not like we have like pleasure when we're waking up at 5.30 a.m. or like weighing and measuring our food or 
you know, doing other difficult things. But it's that those behaviors allow us to demonstrate who we are in the world. They are congruent with our how we see ourselves, our identity, our personality. They allow us to demonstrate competency and mastery in our environments. So those habits are integral to us. Sometimes I think coaches and trainers have a hard time working with their clients because for the clients, those habits are not integral to who they are. They're just, maybe they can identify an external reward of losing some weight, or maybe they experience the interjected regulation, which is a type of motivation where you like feel proud if you work out or you feel like ashamed if you don't make it to the gym. But they're at a different place along the spectrum, so their protocol is different. And Mm -hmm. what I love about thinking about the self-determination theory is you meet the client where they're at, so if they're only, their motivation is external reward, like they wanna go to their, a wedding or a high school reunion 20 pounds less than they are right now, you can meet them where they're at and you can offer, help them to create habits where they get rewards and reinforcement for going to the gym or for practicing healthy nutritional habits. And if you do that by meeting basic psychological needs and meeting them where they're at, their motivation will develop. It will grow. So just the same way you and I were not born with these habits integrated into our personality. We took a long, long time. I know. Took us a long time to integrate those behaviors. And so every day. That's right. Every day. That's right. And so now like I'm in a place where it's not a I don't have a risk of like, oh, I'll get too stressed or busy and I won't go to the gym. No. For me now it's like brushing my teeth. Like I'm going (laughs) because that (laughs) is me. Um and so the, how I got there was tons of repetition, tons of reinforcement, tons of practicing integrating those behaviors into who I am and really valuing them. And so if we want to help our clients, we don't say like, this is the protocol of what you should be doing. We say, okay, where are you at? I'm, I'm glad you admire where I'm at, but you know what I did? I did a lot of repetitions of like taking care of my nutrition, getting up and going to the gym, rewarding myself after going to the gym, you know, reading things and learning things that help facilitate those behaviors. And so you figure out where they're at, what, what are, what is motivating them? What are they willing to do? What do they have the bandwidth to do? You set the bar so that they can achieve those goals, mm-hmm. feel good about it. And then that motivation becomes more internalized. It is enhanced. It Less. is bigger and stronger and more powerful. So they actually enjoy what they're doing more. They work harder. They devote more time to it. And you look like you are rock star coach. (laughs) All the while, you're not forcing them or browbeating them or even being like rah-rah, you know, like a cheerleader. You're being evidence-based, client-centered practitioner. And that's because as a practitioner, we left out our ego giving non-biased information because our number one purpose is helping that person, not helping us. Because sometimes we... We're like, we're helping ourselves by saying, oh, you know, look how I look. You need to do X, Y, Z, but he, he's not getting it. Yeah, and that is the paradox of, for people helpers. You know, on the one hand, we have so much experience. We have acquired so much knowledge. We have devoted so much time to our education, and we are so passionate about these things that we want for people. But on the other hand, we are completely powerless. We are not the expert on that individual. That individual is the expert on themselves. And so you're doing this dance where you're 
you're holding your knowledge and your expertise, but you're also holding the client and you're respecting where they're coming from and you're developing a plan based on where they're at and what they want to do. Exactly. And you, we, we, sometimes we take away their gas, the motivation, because it's our own fault. That's right. Yeah. So we focus too much on us. Exactly. We're, we're not meeting them where they're at. So they're distanced from us. Their relatedness is not happening for them because they feel like we're not getting them. They do not feel autonomous. They feel controlled. And they're not really learning anything. They're not gaining competency because they're just hearing about what an expert you are and, and how they know nothing. So it does not facilitate basic psychological needs, those vitamins that you were talking yes. about. Mm -hmm. Let's say I, I give you a delete button and I say, look, Lisa, if you press this button three times, you can erase three things forever from the Internet. From the Internet? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, like, uh, I don't know if this is a correct answer, but refinishing pictures like uh, photoshopping, like either how somebody's body looks or what somebody's face looks like. I think that that has done so much damage on an unconscious level to society where young people are just constantly exposed to unattainable faces bodies. Um, I wish that that never existed because even, even if an individual says like, Oh, I don't want to be that skinny or I, I don't want, you mm -hmm. know, I don't need my complexion. It doesn't matter. They've already been exposed to that millions of times. And so their idea of that is changed in yeah. their mind. Um, this might be way off topic. Um, but because I'm an addictions counselor, sometimes I work with people who have behavioral addictions. Mm -hmm. um, and so recently I've been working with people who have pornography addiction. Yeah. And I also feel that because of the internet, there's been all of this exposure to young people looking at pornography or even just sex that's depicted in movies and yeah. other things that is so far away from what actually happens in real life or it just skews their their understanding of what sex is or how a woman, a woman should act or how a man should act or what relationships are. I'm mm -hmm. seeing now at this period in my career that it really has influenced a whole generation in a way that makes them unfamiliar um, with how to navigate relationships and dating. And so I wish I could delete that. Um, one more thing I could delete. I, finally, I think the idea that um, that mental health care is not health care, that it is to address laziness or weakness or a shortcoming. And when I say mental health care, I mean therapy and I mean medication. People okay. have such entrenched views of therapy and medication, meaning you failed or you're lazy or you have a character defect when you have a health condition. So I find myself on a soapbox often saying, if you had a red itchy rash on your arm, you would, you yeah. would put some cream on that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because if yeah. your skin is irritated and it's bothering you, you see it, you feel it. And the doctor says, put a cream on it. And you're like, yeah, you don't say to yourself, Oh, well, if I just pull myself up on my bootstraps, yeah. I can make this go away. 
or if I just, you know, cover it up and like act like it's not there, that's better than actually treating it. And that's how we treat mental health is we say, if I just pretend it's not there, if I just suck it up, if I stop being so lazy, and that is bonkers. That is stigma that has been, that everybody has been raised up in and taking a medicine because your brain's not functioning properly or talking to someone because you're not thinking clearly is just as conventionally wise as putting cream on your itchy rash. Exactly. And that's a misinterpretation of people saying, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, not. It doesn't work like that. That's right. And if you have a common cold, oh. yeah, what doesn't yeah. kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. You get an immunity to that virus, your immune yeah. system is stronger at the end. If you are experiencing distress and impairment, if the way you feel is screwing up your life and getting in the way, you need to take care of that. Exactly. You need some medicine <laughs> or you need to talk to somebody. Yeah. I don't know if I should say about that, but I, I know that you're on to something and new product coming out. Yes. Thank um, you for bringing it up. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yes. So because of so many conversations that I've had with fitness professionals and also nutrition coaches over the years and in services I've been asked to do, I decided to develop a course. Um, up, that is continuing education for coaches and um, nutrition coaches as well. Mm -hmm. And um, once I started to do the curriculum, I realized I needed more than just one volume. So what I'm launching in January of 2020 is volume one of Psych Skills for Fit Pros. Okay. And in this volume one, I'm addressing motivation in, and specifically the self-determination theory. So well, those basic psychological needs and also understanding the continuum of, of motivation and how to facilitate um, motivation and enhance it and grow it. And then I am addressing the stages of change as they're discussed in the trans theoretical model. So this mm -hmm. is the process by which people change their behaviors. And then I'm addressing motivational interviewing, which is how to communicate, how to talk and work with your clients in ways that promote motivation and help to affect change. And so each one of these chapters contains some lectures, some worksheets um, mm -hmm. and ways for the, the listener to try to build in their own experience to what they're hearing. Uh -huh. And then each chapter has an interview with somebody who's working in the field. So oh, wow. as I mentioned before, I'm not a trainer. So I've had the opportunity to interview um, Dean Somerset, Megan Calloway, um, um, Kelly Coffey, Georgie Fear, who oh, is wow. a dietitian. Yep. Um, I believe I have seven interviews in all. And so we get to talk about whatever the content was in that chapter. Let's say it's self-determination theory and basic psychological needs. I talk with Mark Fisher of Mark Fisher Fitness about how those concepts are built into just their everyday interactions with the client, how they approach programming, how they approach goal setting with those psychological constructs in mind. Um, and so I, it's just an awesome way to kind of bring it to life, to talk about it a little bit out loud since I won't get to be live in a classroom with the student. Um, well, you will because you're going to be doing workshops and seminars. So Yes, I will be doing that. <laughs> I love to do that so much. It's so energizing for me. Um, yeah, so and hopefully, you know, once this product is launched and it's out there, I'll have more opportunities to go places and speak to, to different um, coaches in different settings about you know, particular applications for whatever kind of athletes or people they're working with. 
which is the missing link for uh, as we were started a conversation with. That's going to be the missing link because we've got numerous books in training, in prioritization, in nutrition, but we never had anything to, um, as you said, like, for example, the skills of the self-determination model, the actual uh, motivational uh, interviewing, mm -hmm. making people uh, like introducing the buy-in in a better way. Yeah. And what would you say that this product would do for someone that first of all just came out as a personal trainer and yeah. the person has been there for 20 30 years yeah i love it so someone who's just come out as a personal trainer is rich with kinesiology and anatomy and and program design and so now they're wanting to get clients and keep them and the way that they're going to get clients and keep them is by having a client-centered approach by supporting autonomy, by building rapport and relatedness, and getting really good at practicing giving informational feedback. So for that early practitioner, taking this course will help them take all this fresh knowledge they have, and then how to communicate that, how to bring that into session, how to work with the client in real time to facilitate their success. For a trainer who's been in the field for 20 years, you have developed strengths, things you're really good at, and then you have blind spots or you have places where you don't really go or things you don't really touch just because you maybe you feel that it's a weakness or it's outside of your scope. And so really it's an opportunity to audit your psychological skills to identify here are the things I'm really good at. And actually it's awesome. I'm really good at them because there's an evidence base and I mm -hmm. can leverage these strengths to even enhance performance and get better results even more. And Here's some things I've shied away from, or here's some things I haven't really known how to approach, or here's some ways that like I've lost a client or had a client be unhappy that I could maybe put on my radar to work on or practice or think about in my, you know, in my work moving forward. So it just provides this opportunity to kind of do that inventory and then see how to build the strengths. And then if there's anything else that you want to address or work on or grow. Where can I buy it? Mm. Where will so, I find it? Yes. So um, please follow me at Dr. Lewis Consulting on Instagram. Um, and you can sign up for my newsletter on my website, which is um, drlewisconsulting.com. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is a very soft launch in January to a small group of people who sign up to say that they're interested. Um, and what I'm looking for in that soft launch is individuals who might even provide me with some feedback. Okay. And then once I do the soft launch in January, then, which might be you, yes. And then once I do have that smaller launch in January, I'll, I'll collect some feedback, see if there's anything that I want to shift around. And then I will do a larger launch the, um, that first week in March of 2020. Excellent. I'm going to put all the links um, of your website, Instagram, and I know you're doing some podcasts. And also what was really interesting when I was going through your webpage, you were saying about performance consultation uh, uh that it's not only because about athletes it's not only that people want to train but you also have a more of a i don't know if i can use the term but life coaching mm. regarding or life burnouts or actually how to be more efficient because you know when you're in the fire you, you just as you said as we're talking with the athlete you're too narrow-minded and mm. your focus is only there and you cannot see what's happening. And you're there and like, come on, drill back. Let me make you see the 
picture a bit more clear and give you more tools to perform better. Yes. So there is a variety of services that I offer. Of course, I'm licensed in the state of Massachusetts in the United States to practice psychotherapy. However, I do also practice performance enhancement, performance consultation, performance coaching. Those are my words. I do have clients who call it life coaching. I don't identify as a life coach. I know that is it's, that is its own education and mm -hmm. But basically, it is the idea that you're not coming into a conversation with me to correct a deficit. You're coming to build strengths and pursue goals. Excellent. And so it's not a healthcare service. It is a coaching service. I provide that for all kinds of type A people. So right now, actually, I have a, a number of men who work in finance, either because they are hedge fund managers or they're sitting on the board of a bank or mm -hmm. they're venture capitalists. So they're athletes in their heart and they're athletes in their profession, you know, in their mind, awesome. but they're mm -hmm. not physically doing a sport, but it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of the same conversation. And then the other area that I work in is to provide consultation for fitness professionals. Mm -hmm. And this, it can, it can have a, a performance coaching feeling, but another way that I think about it is like having psychological supervision or consultation on your work with your clients. So in the field of psychology, when you are practicing therapy, you have regular supervision. You're talking with somebody else about what you're doing, how you're saying it, how it's going with your clients. And there's nothing like that in fitness and nutrition. And I feel very strongly that there should be. Because often- a coach. Yeah, because you guys are forced sometimes to put your psychological cap on, put your nutrition cap on, to work crazy hours, to be available all hours of the night and day, like online and texting. I mean, so much is asked of you that if you gave it all away, you're gonna burn out. And so for fitness professionals, I offer this consultation and some people just wanna talk about like, how can I take good care of myself? Like what are the limits I wanna set of how many hours I work or when I'm available online or what do I need to do to refuel myself? Other clients um, that, that engage in this kind of consultation want to talk about really tough clients they have who maybe have poor boundaries or have eating disorder or who are just really draining <laughs> to deal yeah. with. And we kind of talk about, okay, how can you work with this individual in a way that is going to get them results, but then also keep you from hating them and, and hating your work <laughs> and getting burned out. <laughs> True. So so true. And that's very important. Uh, I'm going to be looking to that because uh, we sometimes forget uh, that coach, a coach needs a coach. And that's, yeah. and we, we need all need support. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Oh, uh, thank you for uh, having me. That, that was so like so informative and you seriously was like, <sighs> and I cannot wait for your product. Oh, thank uh, you. I wrote down the date. I'm going to sign up on your newsletter. Good, uh, good, good. Uh, um, and I'm looking forward to also having you in, um, cause I know hopefully we're gonna, I know you're gonna be booked, but I'm gonna try to find some time for some workshops starting in London or Greece. Uh, we're gonna make it happen. Excellent. I, I so look forward to that. And again, thank you so much for your time. I'm gonna pull the details underneath the, um, the, the video. Okay. And, uh, looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Rocco.